This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. And I'm David Leet. Each episode, we talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. So Marion, today's topic is right up my alley, and it's why do we get fat? As a man of girth, I've been trying to answer that question for years. And Harvard, Stanford, and Columbia University-educated author and science writer Gary Taubes has written about Americans' obsession with addiction to and harmful results of consuming sugar and other carbohydrates. His most recent books are The Case Against Sugar and Why We Get Fat. His work is controversial. It's groundbreaking, and yes, I'm going to say this on air, it works because I have lost almost 40 pounds. Ah! Welcome, Gary. (laughs) Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm delighted to hear that news. Oh, isn't that wonderful? So full disclosure, Gary, we've known each other for almost 40 years. We've been best friends for most of those. And whenever anybody asks me about you, I always say you're a dogma exploder, which I think mm-hmm. would like, would be like a little superhero, you know, cape you could wear. That kind you of glide. superhero little uh, icon figure. Dogma exploder. That You're the guy who blows up the things that we all thought were sacred. And you mm-hmm. take on things we seem to take for granted as true, like cold fusion, salt, fat, carbohydrates. So the first question has to be, how did this line of questioning and inquiry take root in you? Uh, okay. I, and I've been told I can't go back to my childhood, my relationship with my father. So I'll... <laughs> we didn't tell you that. We're happy to hear. You know, lie down on the couch. Just lie uh, on the couch and talk away. Here we go. Um, at some point, all of science is about establishing reliable knowledge, right? That's what scientists mm-hmm. do. And as a science, most science journalists see their job as sort of translating the difficult technical aspects of science and the thrill of the scientific pursuit into something that people without a scientific education can understand and enjoy on some level. And that's what we all have to do. Mm-hmm. But I had the opportunity, I had a background in hard science. I wasn't very good at it, which is why I moved into journalism. And as a both as a journalist and as a reporter of science, you are allowed to question what you hear. Mm. And I simply had the opportunity early in my career, I, when I was a, a, a young man and my friendship with you, Marion, was new, I had the opportunity to go up to Geneva and live at a physics laboratory, the CERN, the European Center for Nuclear Research, for 10 months thinking I was going to be following a great discovery and writing about that. My idea was I got to, there's one of the great books in science, it's called The Double Helix. It was written by Jim Watson, who won the Nobel Prize, shared the Nobel Prize for elucidating the structure of the DNA molecule. And it was all about how they did that and the life of the scientists and all the 
extraneous mishigas that went with it. And I thought, hey, here's an opportunity to write a book about a great discovery, to be there while it happens, and not have to be a brilliant scientist to do it. And I got to CERN, and I realized after about a month that what I thought was a great discovery had some dramatic problems, significant problems. Mm -hmm. And as I followed it for the following nine months, I saw that basically documented this, the researchers learning how they had screwed up. And the <laughs> Nobel laureate who ran the experiment trying to hide from the rest of the world their revelation that they had screwed up. So I, it was, um, and that Nobel laureate was a kind of a Machiavellian figure who had trouble strictly adhering to the truth in any conversation. He sort of perceived uh, the an answer to the question was what he wanted you to believe rather than what he thought the truth might be. So I had the opportunity in the course of this research to be lied to repeatedly by a Nobel laureate. <laughs> and you liked it. That, that, that became the addiction? Well, it certainly <laughs> made me realize that there is a place in science for investigative journalism and that you are allowed to question what you hear and that part of the job is to always be asking, does this make sense? Often yeah. what you're reporting about is not something you can judge. You know, mm. Quantum optics. I mean, I have no idea what makes sense or not. But when you right. get into fields like nutrition and public health, you're addressing some pretty profound phenomena that we all mm -hmm. have experience on. And as you're talking to researchers, you're allowed to ask them to ask yourself as you're interviewing them, does this make sense? And that's basically what I started doing for my yeah. career. And what you've been doing, I mean, all, all along the way, I've watched this being applied, as I said, to things like cold fusion and salt and fat and carbohydrates. So it's, you brought this subject up of nutrition. You brought us up right up to what you do these days. You went from this, this sort of rogue physicist to this, uh, this field of nutrition. And Everybody's writing a diet book, it seems, you know, except for me. Even and, I want to write one. And David wants to write one now. So how do you make yourself, you're, you're writing in a field that, that everybody seems to be writing about. How do you make yourself stand out from the noise in a field like nutrition? Every single diet book author says, hey, I'm the one that's got the, 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 the secret yep. to you to lose weight. You shouldn't read anybody else's. So what do you do? If, yeah, and it's funny because I just finished a book that once again tried to do this. I'm getting the edited manuscript back tomorrow. I'll find out how well my editor thinks I succeeded at that job. Um, I mean, that's the rub. You look at, uh, and I've kind of created this problem myself, which is interesting because when I started doing this as a journalist, you had diet books. And right. diet books say, uh, I'm overweight. Yeah, you know, I was a doctor who was overweight and I was struggling with my weight and I tried to do what I was supposed to do and it didn't work. So I delved into the research and lo and behold, I found the secret and it worked for me and it worked for my patients. <clears throat> and now I'm going to tell you what the secret is. And I'm going to make that secret different from all the other secrets because if it's the same thing, then there's no reason to buy my book instead of someone else's book. So you end up with these sort of cacophonies cacophony of voices. Everyone's saying, I've got the secret. Um, and some people do. That's the joke. Uh, you know, part of my learning experience in doing investigative science journalist on nutrition was that the, the problem we have is that the 
the academic research scientists did such a lousy job trying to understand what the cause of obesity is, what the cause of the sort of environmental dietary trigger of heart disease and hypertension and diabetes and you name a chronic disease, they screwed it up. Mm. That it's left to physicians and lay people to learn the truth themselves. And so some of those people actually discovered things that worked for them. Mm -hmm. um, as a journalist, I had, an op I had a unique opportunity. So I started my research for the journal Science. I was working for science throughout the 90s as a correspondent. I had a lot of, my editor had faith in me. So when I said, I'm going to write a piece about, I'm going to investigate this idea that salt causes high blood pressure because I realized there's a controversy there. And then I spent basically nine months of my life doing one magazine article that paid for about a month and a half. So you have to set up your life in such a way that you could yeah pay for it. It's like you do you like a lawyer, you do corporate work you don't like to make money and then you find you you, you finance your pro bono work. Um, I was able to start my journalistic investigations for science, which gave me credibility. And the reporting is always about trying to establish credibility. So mm -hmm. the answer to your question, how do you stand out in my case, was to keep hammering on the part that I'm a journalist. I have no, well, I used to have no dog in the race. Now I clearly do. But I started this with an open mind and I functioned as an investigative journalist, which is very much like functioning as a scientist because you're trying to establish reliable knowledge. You're investigating the unknown. And as long as I played by those games, people might not like what I report, but on some level, I would always remain credible for reporting it. I wasn't saying, yeah, I wasn't a, doctor working in Missouri saying right. so the thing that I want to understand is I read both sugar and also why we get fat blown away by the fact that doctors a long time ago you talked about in hospitals were actually giving patients saturated fat through meats and a lot of the a lot of the foods that we're told to stay away from now and I have followed the book I've followed other aspects that relate to the book and I've lost weight I tell my doctor what I'm doing and everything just goes crazy in that office when I say I'm following this because <laughs> they think it's a bunch of bad science so right. how do you as a writer now deal with these people who are freaking out and are detractors to your work and your research well, along the line, you have to develop a thick skin. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the very first, the pieces I did for science were, you know, they, so science is a journal that's read by the scientific community, and the, I'm concluding that the establishment is wrong. And the establishment researchers write in and they write a letter to the editor saying Taubes is wrong because he didn't say this and he got this wrong and he misinterpreted that. And the editor showed it to me and I'm allowed to write a response and that's published in the journal and that's the end of it. And that happened with my salt piece and then it happened with the dietary fat piece. Um, then I stepped into the New York Times Magazine, which is a funny story, by the way, if you allow so how do people get started in their work their careers, um, yeah. i'm engaged to this wonderful writer this is back in 2000 and she has a maternal figure now her biological mother's dead but her maternal figure is a very powerful socialite 
designer, interior decorator in New York, is an amazing personality. And my fiance tells me that this woman doesn't really get what I do as a science writer. She just doesn't understand that it. it doesn't seem that important to her. Could I do something for the New York Times magazine <laughs> so that she'd get it? So I pitch an article to the New York Times magazine saying, let's figure out what the uh, beginning of the obesity epidemic is. I have a friend that always helps in writing to have friends in high places. As a matter of fact, you guys, Marion, definitely, you, learn, you move as your friends become editors and they move from better and better magazines, you move to better and better magazines because Absolutely. they need writers they can trust. Yep. That's why you Absolutely. keep your friends. Yeah, That's and right. one of the problems with being a writer in the middle of nowhere, it's why it's better to be in New York because if you're in New York, you'll put friend editors and they'll give you opportunities. So I have an editor friend I'm having lunch with regularly at the local French cafe. I pitch him a story on the obesity epidemic. In the course of my research on dietary fat for science, I had an administrator at the National Institutes of Health say, you know, back in 1984, we put the whole country on a low-fat diet, and we thought that they would, if nothing else, lose weight because they're going to stop eating all the dense calories of butter and, you know, fat, and lo and behold, we have an obesity epidemic, and they started eating all these carbohydrates. So I pitch him this idea, and I say, maybe it's this, maybe the low-fat diet made us eat too many carbs, maybe it's sugar or high fructose corn syrup. Let me look into it. And I end up in the course of this research, basically writing an article that says that, you know, maybe Atkins was right all along. Maybe the problem yeah. is the carbohydrates and we should all be eating high fat diets and not eating carbs. The famous piece that ended up on the top cover of the New York Times magazine with the big steak on it steak that said, what if it's all been a big fat lie, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, how many yeah. times have you been on the cover of the New York Times magazine? Uh, three now. So And so let's talk. Let no, no, come on. I got the I need to know what's it like? I mean, does it fulfill all that fantasy that we all have like, oh, if I could just have a piece on the cover of the most powerful magazine in the world, my life would be made or yeah, did, did your it... life change? <laughs> well, <laughs> he got married. He did marry the woman. So He did. That's right. Apparently yeah, no, I... her, her her stepmother said, uh, okay, He's good. Yeah. You can marry him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, then I then I dragged her to California and she right. stopped, uh, stopped saying things like yeah. he's good. Yes. Um, <clears throat> anyway, yeah, no, it's it's. I mean, it's remarkable, and especially if your article was saying everything you thought you knew about diet was wrong. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean about I sort of help promote this idea that even a journalist could come in and say everything you think you know about diet is wrong. You should all maybe be eating this instead of that. We've gotten the wrong advice. Um, Atkins, and I mean, talk about, I had, remember I said earlier that the, the job is to establish your credibility. Mm -hmm. So that article originally leads with this young pediatric endocrinologist at Harvard Medical School, runs the pediatric obesity clinic at Boston Children's Hospital, and has concluded himself that the problem is these highly refined carbohydrates and sugars, and he's putting these kids on something that looks quite a bit like the Atkins diet. He doesn't think of it that way, but I could think of it that way. So by starting the article with this young Harvard researcher, it's a way that I could suck readers in without scaring them away. Mm -hmm. And I could remain, <laughs> keep credible. And even the, the, 
the establishment researchers are going to say, well, he's starting at Harvard with this Harvard researcher. This is all good, right? It's all, mm -hmm. I'm thinking credibility, credibility. The editors at the time, uh, Adam Moss, who went on to now has been at New York Magazine for decade and a half, and, and Hugo Lindgren, who was a young researcher, there, a young editor at the Times Magazine and went on to run the Times Magazine a decade later. They read the article and they say, well, you know, you bury this Atkins guy deep in the article. I want him buried where he was out of view and wouldn't scare people. I want to be able to soften him up by the time they get to Atkins. And they say, Atkins is the elephant in the living room. Put him in the lead. <laughs> <laughs> so I write this lead that says, you know, if the medical establishment has this find yourself standing naked in Times Square type of nightmare, it's that Robert Atkins of the infamous Atkins diet revolution was right and everything they've been saying was wrong. Mm -hmm. Something to that effect. It was phrased more colorfully. I show it to my by then wife because <laughs> we've gotten married during this period. And I say to her, they won't run this in a million years. And I email it to the Times, and they don't change a word. Mm. And that becomes wow. the lead. So now when you get that cover story with the picture of the porterhouse steak with the butter, which I learned like 15 years later they had picked because it was so greasy and disgusting looking. Mm -hmm. um, and the headline is, you know, maybe it's all but a big fat lie. Not only do you get the cover of the New York Times Magazine, but every publisher in New York wants to publish your book. So then there's the... the Pretty wonderful. So the good news is, yeah, I have wanted to write a book for years, but I didn't knew I couldn't do it because I tend to spend years and years doing research and I would never be able to break even. And now that I was getting married, I had to be able to break even in my life. My father had passed away, so I couldn't borrow money from him, as <laughs> most writers do when they work on their books. Yeah. Um, that freelance so, life. So we're going to get to that in a minute and talk about yeah. what, what life is really like. Although I just want to add here that having written a New York Times Magazine piece many, many years ago and having gone through a very similar experience where I had written an, a lead that I thought was, you know, very kind and gentle and and quiet. And it was a book. It was a, it was a magazine piece that introduced the subject mm -hmm. of Alzheimer's disease to people. And the editor finally turned to me one night when we were editing together and he said, how did this thing start? And I said, well, I thought my mother, who was the subject of the piece, I thought my mother was going mad when she killed the yeah. cats. And he yeah. took that line, put it at the top of the piece. And I can tell you that the same sort of thing happened to me, that startling awareness and thinking, oh, they'll never run a piece that opens with, I thought my mother was going mad when she killed the cats. But they did. And it changed for me, everything I've ever known about how to open a piece, right? And there's nothing like an incredible lead to bring people into a piece and also to make you stand out from other writers. That's it. Well, and it's true. First of all, I want to say when I, I met Marion, uh, I know the, the clearly I know the first sentence to her piece better than the first sentence to mine. And I could have, you know, I was mouthing the words with her as she went along. <laughs> That's so sweet. I remember that piece was so shocking that I met her. We lived, uh, we were neighbors in New York. And it's a long and one time romantic story, but I remembered her piece like I had read it the day before instead of, I think maybe a year and a half before. And, and I had mm. written a piece in Playboy about my 
ill-fated boxing career that Marion had read. So our first discussion. Yeah, it was one of those wonderful New York stories. Yeah. And we're walking down the street. I had just read your piece in Playboy, and I'm walking down the street, and you're walking down the street we've never met, and we start talking, and I'm looking at you, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. I think this is the guy whose piece I just read. And five minutes into the conversation, you said, wait a minute, aren't you the girl that wrote that piece in the New York Times Magazine? And so those stories do happen in a writing life. So I, I've always loved that story. I love to tell yeah. it to people. I somehow feel like I should leave my office and let you two just you <laughs> like know, carry Woody, on after like all these Woody years. Like a little Woody Allen story. Yeah. Yeah. Getting back to leads in writing, when I'm doing a piece, mm-hmm. and again, I haven't, you know, I'm now, I'm kind of trapped at the time in this nutrition world and obesity, and I want people to understand that, so I'm not. It's one of the things I miss about my professional career the most is get that that rush of getting to take on a new story, and I feel like this is how, you know, dogs must feel in the hunt when they sense the, they, they pick up the, the, the smell of the fox. And mm. um, But when I'm doing the reporting, I know the moment I know the story's going to work is when I when I know what the lead is. Oh, yeah, what I'm I, with you. Yeah, mm. yeah. That yeah. once I get that first few sentences, and I know that it works and it sparkles, I know that I got the piece. Until that point, I really can't continue writing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it also defines where the rest of the article is going to go. Which mm-hmm. is Absolutely, what it's got to. So I yeah. just read this wonderful piece by. Uh, another of our old friends, Natalie Angier in the Times, uh, about a uh, chemist, Nobel laureate chemist at Caltech. And you could see this woman was famous for taking, I mean, famous for many things, but among her character traits is that she can take something that should be this amazing story, like meeting Obama for the first time and getting a presidential medal of science of some form and turned it into a hilarious sort of self-effacing story. And Natalie just starts her article with this sort of the couple of these women, Nobel laureate Caltech professor stories about fiascos in mm. that are also hilarious in the telling. It's sort of, you can feel her as she's hearing these stories saying, I can't do better than this. I'm going to put those in the lead. And that captures who this woman is. And that's interesting because I think a great lead will not only tell you where you're going, it's like a directional, it will also give the reader enough information about voice and personality of the writer. So you know you're hooked with that voice. So which gets back to that whole idea of being reliable and being somebody whose hands we we really want to be in, even if you're making us question what it is that we've previously believed about salt or fat or whatever. So and that's you, a great freelancer. It is a great freelancer. Yeah. And I want to talk about that because so many of the people that may be listening would like to live this freelance life. I mean, the Gen X and Gen Y and Gen Z generations have the sense that, you know, they're going to live without working for the man. So this life as a freelancer, how does it go these days? Can you still do it? Is it nonstop discipline? Or like me, do you have to sort of barter with yourself to to get to the work every day? Are you um, able to find enough sources? Can you just sort of talk to us about what the life is like being a freelance writer? Uh, first, it's terrible. One of the great mistakes I ever made <laughs> was becoming a freelance writer. I barely survived it. Um, First thing you need is parents you can borrow money from because the checks, you know, come in sporadically. I had a friend in the 90s who basically taught me how to run my freelance career as a business. And I owe him a great debt of 
gratitude for that. That's how he did it. And so I had different, in order to stay freelance, um, and I didn't, I did it more or less out of choice. The advantage of being a freelancer is I could write the articles I wanted for the publications I wanted. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I wanted to do an article for science to speak about the subject at a level that scientists were interested in, which was often the level in science that I'm interested in. And when we talk about science writing, one of the great gifts of science writing is be able to get all the science out of it. So people mm -hmm. can understand the story without getting tripped over the, you know, it's a very complex subject. So the less science in it, the better. But Sometimes I, I was fascinated, the, the stuff I did best, I was fascinated by the science. I didn't want to have to dumb it down for anyone. Right. Um, I wanted mm -hmm. to discuss it at the level at which I found it interesting. So often I wanted to work for science, but often it wasn't suitable for science. And I wanted to work, for, you know, I had connections at Discover so I could sell my stuff to Discover. Or sometimes you just, you know, the story's so good that you don't want to... You want it in the biggest possible venue. So you want it in the New York Times magazine or you want it, you know, I mm -hmm. to this day not getting into the New Yorker is one of my great heartbreaks. Not um, yet. Not yet. So oh, it gives I you the flexibility. <laughs> you get the flexibility to write where you want to get it yeah. published. You run it like a business. And we also know about you that because we interviewed your wife at on here on Cordy uh, mm -hmm. a few episodes ago, the the great novelist Sloan Tannen. We also know that you've got this two house, two household writer household, you know, and so you're living in a place where nobody's got a regular job. We assume, of course, it's just nonstop intelligent literary conversation oh, yeah. at your Nick house. Nick and Nora. Just you know, Nick and Nora every chatter. day. But is it a good life? Do you, is it something that you would recommend to people at this point, writing full time, especially two people under the same house? Household? Well, again, it always comes down to you have to be able to afford it financially yes. and emotionally. Mm -hmm. Um, and the financial part is not easy. I was just, you know, the other day I often, I'll read a writer's work and I think, boy, he's, he or she is good. I'd like to learn more about it. So I'll, them, so I'll Google them. I was Googling a writer the other day who, uh, freelance writer lives in Boston, looks to be maybe in his late twenties. And I'm thinking, how does he afford to do what he does? Because I know how hard it is. And I, I afforded it in part, uh, I was working for like the IBM magazine and then to the IBM people, I met the public relations director of IBM. So I was, uh, the pieces that sort of defined my career at science, these investigations into, uh, diet and health were tremendous money losers, but I simultaneously, I was writing speeches and press releases for IBM, which I considered doctor's money. I hated it. Yeah, hated so doing it, but sure. it would pay for a month of my life and one week of work. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I could spend the other three weeks working on my pro bono stuff, which was these investigations for science. You have to be able to afford it. And the problem is, if you uh, the problem, if you at least with me, is if I can't afford it, it's hard. If you're worried about money, it's hard to focus on the work. The flip side, by the way, is if you don't need the money at all. It's hard to get motivated to finish the work. <laughs> so it's a sort of delicate balance between paying the bills and being desperate enough that you actually do the job, finish it, 
and hand it in. And maybe not everybody is as neurotic as I am, but that's, you know, that through the nineties until when, once I started writing about nutrition, I was, I was, I was fine. Like I said, you write a book saying everybody is wrong about diet, except me. And you've got the New York times, they, you know, the, the soapbox you can stand on. Um, You know, I was okay. There were there were still rough patches where I was being saved by a grant here or a part-time job there. But um, you know, if it's it's just difficult. And and magazines, I if I were to write for a magazine like Discover today, I would be paid less per word than I was making in 1986 when I was 30 years old. And I could write two or three times as fast back then, which I can't explain. But an article back then that took me three weeks would take me three months today. So quickly, as we wrap this up today, your book that you're waiting to get the word on from your editor, what is it? When is it out? And um, let's get our readers, our listeners excited about that. Yeah, what can you tell us about it? Well, it's this arguing, making the same arguments I've been making in my three previous books on nutrition, because I have to keep saying, I have to get these arguments understood. Remember, if you know, the fundamental conclusion of my first book, mm-hmm. Good Calories, Bad Calories, which is, is we don't get fat because we eat too much. We get fat because of a hormonal regulatory defect that's the dietary trigger of which is the carbohydrates in our diet. So if you want if you're one of these people who fatten easily, as I am, as you are, and I I used to be not quite as easily, but um, then the only solution, only long-term solution is to remove carbs because it's the carbohydrates that, that drive that fattening process. Um, Mm -hmm. So I have to get that message understood and the obesity and diabetes epidemics are so, uh, profound that I don't feel like I can walk away and do something else. And I don't know if I could afford to walk away and do something else. <laughs> it's a continuing theme. Well, yeah. well, thank you. So, and I, and I hope the message gets understood because <laughs> we love your books. I have lived on the, uh, the lifestyle since you first started writing about it. And I'm deeply grateful for that, but we're really deeply grateful for you coming on. Today. And we hope to have you on again. And I will have lost another 40 or 50 pounds. <sighs> and we can talk more about that. I have my fingers crossed. Gary Taubes' latest books, The Case Against Sugar and Why We Get Fat, can be found wherever books or audiobooks are sold. And don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to us wherever you go. And remember, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you, as the great Maya Angelou told us. So tell your stories.